Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. In the run-up to Christmas 2022, it's the season to be striking. First up are the 100,000 postal workers who are striking for seven days in December. Then come the RMT, picket line regulars this year, with two more 48-hour strikes, just in time for Christmas parties and the December shopping season, the first properly busy one since COVID-19. Then, for the first time in their history, nurses are striking, in the middle of a busy winter season already battered by the pandemic and its brutal after-effects. But all these workers want for Christmas is decent working conditions and fair pay. All they've received is a government in turmoil, a cost-of-living crisis and a recession. So how will this winter play out? How are unions changing in this turbulent environment? And what has it been like to be the leader of the Trades Union Congress, the TUC, in the last decade? And how is it now in our present day? I'm delighted to say that the TUC General Secretary herself, Frances O'Grady, coming to the end of her tenure this month, is here today to answer those questions and more. Hello, Frances. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. So let's start with a new political situation for voters, workers and unions. Sunak and Hunt are in charge. The impact of their November mini-budget is still causing shockwaves. Now, you obviously worked with Sunak before when he was Chancellor during COVID, but has the Sunak and Hunt approach to the unions been any less combative than their predecessors? I think the problem with Rishi Sunak is that he thinks unions and working people are only good for a crisis. So when he was Chancellor, we did agree that furlough scheme that saved millions of jobs and livelihoods and helped the economy bounce back quicker than otherwise would have been the case, avoided that evil of mass unemployment. But ever since, unions were dropped like a hot brick. And I think that's a terrible shame because working people have good ideas. You know, thriving democratic unions are important for a strong society. And any decent employer knows that you've got to engage the workforce if you're going to boost productivity and, you know, grow for the future. But what we've got now is same old, same old, back to the Tories' greatest hits, that lethal combination of austerity and real pay cuts for working people. And this isn't just this year. Remember, we've had 12 years of stagnating and falling living standards for working people, and people just don't have any savings to fall back on. They've got children to raise, they've got bills to pay, and they're feeling that something has gone badly wrong in Britain when profits are soaring, but workers' wages are taking real cuts. Did you expect anything to be different in their approach after the complete chaos created by Truss and Quarting? Yeah, well, that was a bit of a disaster. And, you know, certainly independent think tanks have calculated that Liz Truss's mini budget, you know, crashed the economy and blew a 30 billion hole in the public finances. But the problem for her successors is that they're making the wrong people pay and failing to take responsibility for mismanagement of the economy over the last decade. I mean, let's be clear, Britain is bottom of the league for growth, investment and hits to workers' pay. So, as I say, something has gone wrong in Britain. They're playing the same old tunes, but it's not working. It's not growing our economy. And we're certainly not getting fairness. 
Let's talk about the nursing strike. As I mentioned earlier, it's the first in their history. You know, it's amid a cost of living crisis, obviously. The government have said the pay demand is equal to 19.2%, although the Royal College of Nursing's General Secretary, Pat Cullen, has said she doesn't recognise that figure. You know, no one doubts what an important job that the nurses are doing, but, you know, it's a very big ask. Is a big pay rise like that achievable, given the massive pressures on public finances? I think what has to be achievable is recruiting and retaining enough NHS staff, including nurses, to keep our health service running and to make sure that they in turn you know, create a fit and healthy workforce, which employers need. But of course, what we've got at the moment is nurses leaving the service in droves, because frankly, they can earn better wages for less stress elsewhere. And again, I think the government is failing to acknowledge that nurses are worse off in real terms to the tune of £5,000 a year compared to where they were in 2010. So when nurses say we want a cost of living increase plus, they're saying all we want is to keep up with inflation so that we don't suffer a real pay cut. But we also want some restoration of the money we've lost over the last decade and more, You know, which I think many people understand they do a demanding job, a skilled job, invest in their own training. You know, it's important that we make sure we don't lose NHS staff, public servants across the board. One in three, according to our research at the TUC, are actively considering quitting because, frankly, they just can't do it anymore. You know, the government at the time of the pandemic patted all those key workers on the head, said clap for carers, came out on their doorsteps. I know that many of the public servants I spoke to during the pandemic, including nurses, were really sceptical. They didn't like being called angels because they thought Mm. that allows government ministers to make out they can live on thin air and they can't they're dedicated they have a vocation it's a labor you know of love but they also need to pay their bills and bring up their families and you know i i think the government just doesn't get that there is no fat left to trim on household budgets people have had it up to here they're on the brink and they're saying we at least want to keep up with the cost of living inflation isn't our fault that's being driven by profiteering by energy companies gas and oil go to them for a change raise some money from them but don't keep coming back and picking our pockets on that point about the numbers of people quitting a poll that you held in october carried out by you showed that 32 percent of the public sector are seriously considering quitting their jobs how do we change the way that public sector workers are valued in society surely that is one of the biggest challenges as well yeah, and I think many of us hoped, you know, we all came out on our doorsteps too, didn't mm. we? We, we, Many of us learned for the first time exactly how much different workers got paid and we understood more about the job that they do. We all want to feel that those workers are not just appreciated for their dedication, but that they're rewarded fairly. But we now know that the majority of social care workers earn less than £10 an hour. And a huge number of them are on zero hour and agency contracts. So it's not just about the money, though that's important. It's also about 
the dignity and respect that we give workers through their contracts, how they're treated, their working conditions, and whether or not they're given a voice. And I think, again, I think it's unsustainable for the government to say, on the one hand, they were heroes, and on the other hand, to say, and we're going to give you a pay cut. It just mm. it just doesn't wash. And I think most of us feel ashamed that so many key workers are treated so badly. And we think the government needs to change course. And of course, the government will say the country can't afford it. That's what they're saying. I think it's really important that people know this is propaganda because this is a rich country. It's about who has that wealth and whether they make a fair contribution to the services that we all benefit from. And at the moment, big corporations and the wealthy are not paying their fair share. So even if we equalized capital gains tax, which is paid on selling shares or second homes, even if we equalize that with income tax, that would pay the lion's share of giving every single public servant in the country, an inflation-proofed pay rise. It is affordable. You've just got to make the right political choices. Can we talk about the postal and rail strikes, you know, to talk about ones we already had a lot of this year? Could you explain why there seems to be a state of a stalemate here and what do you think can break that? In the case of rail workers, again, the TUC uncovered that every train operating company has written into its contracts with government, that government sets the terms of the funding, that there is a so-called dispute handling clause in that contract, and that they have to sign off any deal that's done. And we've been very focused on the fact that employers in the rail industry are telling us that they do not have permission from government ministers to do a deal. Now, we've had a fair few different transport ministers over the last (laughs) period, which also hasn't made it easy, to be frank. And some of them have been, uh, shall we say, very macho in their style, which in my experience is not a good way to have mature and sensible negotiations. But Mark Harper, the latest transport secretary, has changed his tone, has acknowledged for the first time that there is this dispute handling clause in contracts. We don't know what they say, but it's written by the government. And so the government clearly is pulling the strings on how disputes are handled behind the scenes, but so far has refused to come to the negotiating table. So the first step for for us from a union perspective is we've got to know that when we're meeting employers across that bargaining table, they've got authority to do a deal. And Mick Lynch, the leader of RMT, has been pressing that transport secretary very hard, set it out in black and white, give employers the confidence that they have authority and discretion to do a deal. Because otherwise, you know, why is everybody's time being wasted? And why are passengers being put through this unnecessary misery when all unions want is to be able to negotiate a deal, but the government, frankly, has been blocking it? And what's happening with Royal Mail? You know, what, um, how is that situation 
different? This is now becoming a very difficult dispute with Royal Mail. You know, the posties have returned resounding results on their strike ballots. Nobody takes strike action lightly. You know, the point is to get the employer to the table to come to an agreement that we can all live with. But instead, we've again seen a pretty macho style where it's not only about asking workers to accept real pay cuts, something I have to say that those at the top of Royal Mail have not inflicted on their own remuneration packages. They have grown significantly. But they're now also talking about big job cuts and what the union has described as uberization of workers' terms and conditions. Again, taking more workers down that road of insecure contracts, bogus self-employment, zero hours, all of that, which we know has got this country into a terrible mess. It's no way to grow an economy and it's no way to grow it fairly. And This is a kind of business model that we need to consign to the dustbin of history because it's, you know, it's it's not just bad for workers. Ultimately, it's bad for the economy. We need to rebuild Britain on the foundation of decent work, treating people with a bit of decency and dignity so that they have money to spend in the local economy and keep other shops and businesses going. Just a final point on strikes at the moment, there's obviously also talk of coordinated strike action. You know, is it the right thing to do? You know, it causes more disruption, of course, which is the point. But is it ethical when it comes to things like health? And does it risk losing the sympathies of the public? In areas like health and midwifery and the fire service, we've always had voluntary agreements with employers to protect emergency action and care. So they're called life and limb agreements. Like I say, people working in those services don't go into those jobs to get rich. They are dedicated, but they expect in return that they are treated fairly. But even on strike action, for example, when the midwives took strike action for the first time in their history, they had a principle that no mother or baby should come to harm. Now, it's it's really, really difficult for workers in, in that position. Like I say, no worker takes that decision lightly. And they, you know, care very deeply about the impact of strike action on the people they want to serve. But the dilemma for so many workers is what happens when the employer or the government exploits that dedication. And it's particularly true, I would say, for many of the jobs that women are more likely to do, Mm. where people feel their vocation is being exploited. And, you know, it can't just be a labor of love. You know, it doesn't matter how amazing you are as a nurse or a firefighter, you still have bills to pay. You've still got obligations to your own family and your own workmates to make sure that you're paid and treated fairly. So many of those workers feel in a terrible dilemma. But on coordination, I think what we're seeing is a coordinated offensive against working people, not just this year, but over the last decade and more with, you know, as we've shown, real wages falling and living standards now, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, set to 
be hit for another two years, unprecedented, another two years into the future. And workers just feel if we don't make a stand together, then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. They can't see light at the end of the tunnel unless they stick together. So the coordination, you know, strikes are just a symptom. The cause is that uh, failure to give working people a fair share of the wealth that they produce. You know, we've seen top pay rising, we've seen shareholder dividends rising at three times the rate of pay. And of course, in many areas, profits have been soaring too. Everybody needs to put a fair contribution into the pot to fund our public services, which we all rely on and we all benefit from. We need educated, trained workers in Britain to grow our economy. We need healthy workers to be able to get out of the mess we're in now with unemployment set to grow because too many people are on too long waiting lists trying to get help with long-term sickness Mm. and illness and disability. So, you know, public services are a driver for growth and they're worth investing in. And, you know, the TUC's job is to coordinate our unions. That's why we exist and where it makes sense. Certainly, we've been doing this at a sectoral level in education and health, where it makes industrial sense tactically to uh, synchronize action or coordinate action, we will do that. And, you know, I've, I've seen it, I've spoken to many workers in dispute, all of them doing it with a heavy heart, but the strength they get from the solidarity of workers and communities and the public showing their support for them keeps them going because they know they've got a just cause. It's interesting you saying about the exploitation of women quite often because of the jobs that women do in the public sector. And you mentioned a couple of times a macho approach to negotiations, you know, as the first female leader of the TUC, you know, as a great role model. Are you surprised by the resurgence of that attitude, or is it something that's never really gone away in negotiations? I have to say, personally, I sort of sometimes wonder whether some of our politicians in power are living in the 1950s. You know, I worry that there's still that notion that women are working for pin money. Um, I'm not sure they really understand that women you know, are normally equal breadwinners, sometimes the main breadwinner and sometimes the only breadwinner for their families. I also think there's still a real problem in Britain of undervaluing the work that women do, you know, and again, I know this can be controversial in some quarters, but you know, is borne out by the facts that there is still a gender pay gap. And I think that you know, some of those caring jobs are seen as the skill involved is not recognised in the way that it should be. It's sort of almost taken for granted that that's what women are good at, rather than seeing it as involving great skill, effort, you know, Mm. intelligence, training, you know, these are incredibly valuable, important jobs. And, you know, if we we learned anything from the pandemic, 
surely to goodness, we learned how valuable those jobs are, how important they are for all of us. I, I do think many of us felt that at a very personal level, you know, when we had any of us who came into contact with the health service or relied on carers for elderly relatives, you know, we saw just how important the work was and how many risks that workers were forced to take because they weren't properly equipped with PPE. You know, surely to goodness, it just feels if there's any justice in the world, the very least they should get is an inflation-proofed pay rise rather than what is currently on the table, which is a real pay cut. What are your major concerns about um, young people's working lives today and um, their future? Well, all the evidence is that young workers support trade union values and have a lot of sympathy for unions. The problem is that young people are much more likely to be in industries. There's very little union presence very high staff turnover, high use of zero hours contracts and agency work. So it's, you know, it's it's very, you know, young people tell us, well, I'd like to join a union, but I don't know whether I'm even going to be in this job in six months' time. So I think a big challenge for all of us is that it's just not fair on this generation of workers. You know, I've spoken to lots of young people who are delaying even thinking about having children because they can't afford it and because they can't get secure housing because they can't get a secure job. You know, there's a whole generation who are being punished with student debts and low pay. And, you know, I don't see how a country has a future unless it treats young people (laughs) decently. They are our future. We've got lots of initiatives on organising young workers and the industries where they're more likely to work, like hospitality or uh, retail. So I feel quite optimistic that we can make a big difference. But in the end, we have got to change the idea that it's okay to exploit the young. It isn't. (laughs) Young people need a decent wage as much as anybody else. Let's talk about the Labour Party's relationship with the TUC. How has that relationship evolved over the years? Well, of course, the TUC helped launched the Labour Party. We were one of the key architects going, you know, back in the day. And the relationship has been important ever since. I mean, we're not affiliated. The TUC isn't affiliated to the Labour Party. But I, I never make any secret of the fact that we share that history and we share values about the kind of Britain that we want to see. So, you know, again, I'm not going to disguise the fact that I think working people would be better off if we had a Labour government in power. We've certainly had big conversations with them about commitments to a new deal for working people. So, you know, every worker having the same rights from day one, banning those zero hours contracts that young people in particular are suffering from, decent pay, decent conditions, and and an idea that we should have a labour market where people should have more security at work. They should be able to raise a family on the wages that they get. They should have a genuine living wage 
that pays a decent rate. So I think we've got that common agenda. If Labour do come into power, they have made the commitment that that would be one of their very early first 100-day priorities and that they would also get rid of those anti-union laws that the Tories have introduced, which are designed to weaken workers' ability to get a fair deal at work. Because as I say, sometimes if the boss won't listen or won't compromise, the only choice you're left with is to take strike action. But if the Conservative government aims to make that harder and harder, including just like P&O, replacing striking workers with low-paid, cheap agency labour. That makes it harder for workers to get a fair deal. So you feel supported by the Labour Party you know, coming up to Christmas 2022 and, you know, obviously uh, encouraged by the polls. And you're going to be a life peer for the Labour Party, of course. <laughs> I've been nominated by Labour. I'm not, I have to admit, I am not a pomp and ceremony type person. So that's (laughs) going to be very interesting. But I do know that if the government carries on with its threat, which it's and its plans to attack workers' rights, make workers' rights worse, particularly our rights that provide safe limits on working time and the right to paid holidays and paid breaks at work. If they're going to attack that, if they're going to attack that fundamental British liberty of the right to withdraw your labour, then I want to carry on doing my bit to make that hard for them (laughs) because I think it's wrong. I would like to know what you want to achieve in the House of Lords. Obviously, bearing in mind that recently Keir Starmer proposed the idea of an elected Lords. You know, I I was wondering whether you would stand for election in those circumstances. Well, let's just say I think there is a lot of merit in the proposals that Keir Starmer has endorsed, which Gordon Brown has been working on. They're not published yet. But the basic idea is that there should be a democratic principle. But also beyond that, Isn't it time to have a Senate of the nations and the regions? You know, a lot of people feel that the country is too focused on Westminster and Whitehall. A lot of people feel locked out of power in different parts of the country. Nations feel disrespected. And I think what Gordon Brown has been working on is a proposal for a Senate that would bind us together on the basis of mutual respect. And I think that's very interesting and a very urgent challenge for the country. So I have to say I've got a lot of sympathy <laughs> but for the proposals. It'll be interesting to see them when they're published, but um, something else I might be able to do my bit towards. And to finish, looking to the future, you know, um, you know there are some positive signs of union membership growing, you know, albeit slowly. And obviously, young people's activism is an important part of that. I was wondering, you know, how you think unions can encourage workers in new industries, say, you know, big corporations like Amazon, we've already referred to, to join unions. You know, what are the things you would say to them to encourage a growth in membership? Yeah, well, I I do. I think Trade unionism has got its mojo back. You know, there's a sense of, um, you know, we're still here and it's lively and uh, we're prepared to speak up and stand up. But I, 
I think there is a challenge to us as a as a movement that we have got to organize the new industries and the new companies and the gig economy. And of course, we've had some brilliant breakthroughs from one of our unions, GMB, in areas like Deliveroo and Uber, where mm. uh, the union's got its foot in the door and it's building membership steadily. Likewise, on Amazon, we're also, you know, we're living in a in a digital economy, and we've got to use digital tools much more effectively. And there's been some really good work on that front, which again is, you know, important to young people and and actually older workers too, whose lives and working lives depend on their smartphone. That's how they get the shift in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to have a digital presence too and we've been using that very effectively actually in recent months in particular so I feel optimistic we can do it but let's not hang about there needs to be more urgency you know we're all stronger the more people we organize and we need that new blood new ideas fresh thinking from a younger generation of digital savvy workers who are brilliant you know the best ever educated generation very often in the worst most exploited jobs we need them in our ranks to be stronger you know when one of us wins, we all win. So, yeah, I think I think that is the big priority for the next year and beyond. Well, if that isn't a rallying cry, I don't know what is. <laughs> Thanks so much, Francis, for being on the bunker today. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, tell your friends, give us good reviews on your favourite podcast app. You can also, as always, support The Bunker Daily on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks all for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer is me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>